Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. This month on Holistic Health Chats, we are shaking things up. There will still be regular weekly guest interviews, but I've added a few special surprises. In today's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I'm actually doing a little solo number. I wanted to take the opportunity to expand on a recent Instagram post titled Nine Things That Need to Change in the Standard of Care Being Provided to Girls and Women. It caught a lot of attention, so my guess is that this is something that resonates with a lot of you. Now, I want to get in before anyone else does and say that, of course, some of you will have anecdotal stories that disprove some of the things that I'm saying or outliers that don't align with the examples I give, but these are exceptions. I know this from my clinical experience. I know this from my client stories. I know this from speaking with other practitioners and also GPs too. So these are nine of my top frustrations with our standard of care. And I want you to know about these so that you can be empowered to ask questions and ultimately experience better health outcomes. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to draw your attention to something exciting. Later this month, I'm hosting two free online workshops. Together, we will explore the reasons for your premenstrual symptoms and the solutions so that you can live pain and symptom free. If you'd like to register for one of these, head to the show notes and you'll see the link there. Without further ado, let's get into this solo episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Holistic Health Chats. Today's episode is a little bit different from the rest. It is just going to be me talking uh, and we will be doing a couple of these throughout October. So stay tuned because there'll be more of these bonus episodes. We will still have the regular ones with guests as well, but just throwing in a couple of extra ones. And these are all going to be centered around hormones and women's health. So first, we're going to talk in this episode about what I believe the nine things that really need to change in the standard of care being provided to girls and women. So I posted about this on Instagram recently and so much interaction. So I thought it's obviously a great topic. You guys want to chat about it. So let's do it. So number one was providing menstrual health education at schools and educating parents too. And I noted that, no, this is not the same as sex ed. So let's dive into this. So many of the women that I speak with in clinic, doesn't matter what age, they could be anything from 23, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, and even 60. And more often than not, they unfortunately have no idea about their menstrual cycle. When we get into talking about the hormone section of say the initial consultation and I'm asking questions like, so, you know, is your cycle regular? How long is it? Um, And what's the actual length of your period itself and things like this? Inevitably, 
I'll get questions like, so what is day one of your period again? Is that the the day after you your period stops or is it the first day that you bleed? And it's not your fault for not knowing these things at all. It is it shows a really huge gap in our education system, I believe, and also the education being provided to parents because uh, even my mum, who I believe is very open-minded and uh, sort of alternative, I really can't remember her having any great conversations with me around getting my menstrual cycle, what it meant, how it would affect my moods or change my behavior and things like that throughout the month and the differences that I would feel. I can't remember any of that really. I just sort of remember it being a bit of a non-event and then inevitably being prescribed the oral contraceptive pill not too long after that. And that story I know from talking to women in clinic is not uncommon. And you know, it also goes to show that, you know, our parents' generation also weren't provided that education. So it's not to blame them at all. Uh, It's really just to say that there is this huge gap between what we really need to know, what's fundamental biology really about a woman's body and what we're actually educated on in school. And I just think it's it's sad to, you know, be talking to a, a 20, a 30, a 35, a 40-year-old woman and them still have missing pieces about how their body works and really what it means to be a woman. And so there are changes happening. I've seen a couple of great people online who are educating in our schools, but I really do think it has a long way to go. And I think that part of that needs to be an education piece around how we actually need to take care of our hormones. Because unless you're working with a practitioner or unless, unfortunately, you're experiencing hormonal challenges, it's not usually a question you're going to ask or, you know, be provided the answers to. So if we had that education earlier on, I think that it would lead to huge changes in the health outcomes of young women uh, in both areas of fertility and just enjoying life and not being wrapped up in these horrible period symptoms. Number two is that we always need to be providing informed consent about the risks and possible side effects of hormonal birth control, whether that be a Mirena, a copper IUD, the, uh, the oral contraceptive pill, whatever it is, When you're going and getting something like that or being recommended it, there needs to be informed consent. And what that means is that in the insert of, you know, the the packet for the pill or whatever it is, someone pulls out that leaflet with you and they go through all that tiny print with you and say, okay, well, if we just use the hormonal birth control as an example, they get this piece of paper out and they say, do you experience migraines? Do you have migraines in the family? Are there headaches? Did you know that this could increase your risk of migraines and also your risk of clots? This is the percent that it could increase it by. So all of those risks and possible side effects need to have been gone through with you before you can make an informed decision about whether you want to put that thing in your body. And unfortunately, this is not this has not changed. I was 15 or 16 when I started taking the oral contraceptive pill. I've done many things since I was that age. And I'm telling you that from talking to women in clinic, unfortunately, for the most part, that has not changed. There are uh, 
wonderful, amazing GPs out there who are providing informed consent. I've had also positive conversations with women about that, but I would say that that is unfortunately the rarity. And this really needs to change because it's horrible to actually look back on your experience of whatever birth control method you chose and think, oh, I wish I had have known that at the time. I would have never said yes to it. Like we need to know it's going in our body. It's just common sense that we should be told that. So that needs to change. Number three is we need to be educating women with insulin resistant PCOS on the role of diet and how they can reverse insulin resistance through diet alone before being prescribed metformin. So for those of you who don't know, PCOS is a hormonal condition. There's a few different drivers of it. And what we mean by that is underlying causes. But conventionally, if you're going to go and see a GP about it, the only really recognized cause of PCOS is insulin resistance. Um, And insulin resistance is really a condition of poorly controlled blood sugar over a long period of time, which leads to dysregulation in a hormone called insulin, which leads to problems with ovulation and an increase in uh, hormones like testosterone. And so you get all of these symptoms from that. Now, metformin is a drug that is prescribed to people with diabetes because of their issue with insulin, basically overproducing insulin. Now, I just want to get one thing clear, that taking metformin does not make you not insulin resistant, but changing your diet, if you do actually have insulin resistance, you can reverse it. I just don't understand what's going on here that the standard of care at the moment is that, okay, if we have a woman with PCOS and she has insulin resistance, we won't really talk to her too much about how her diet and the things that she's eating are actually causing that insulin resistance. Instead of addressing that thing she's doing every day, which is causing the, the problem, which is causing the hormonal issues, let's actually just prescribe metformin instead, which is not going to fix the issue actually at all and, and actually makes Some women have side effects and feel sick and so on and so forth. So again, just what? What is going on there? That really needs to change. And unfortunately, I have had women uh, who have experienced or experiencing PCOS for years with insulin resistance. And I asked them, what education have you been provided around how your diet and what you're eating is actually causing this situation or not causing, but part of the problem? What? None. I've done a bit of reading online, but I was never talked to about it. That's that's not okay. We can do better than that. We have so much research in this area and that really does need to change. Uh, and just in case you are someone suffering with PCOS, technically it is, you know, a condition that is not able to be put into remission, not able to be reversed, but let's also be clear that you can reverse insulin resistance, which is often the cause through diet alone. So you can reverse your symptoms. Technically, yes, you may still have the label of PCOS, but you don't have the symptoms anymore. So do you still have it? I'll just leave you to answer that question. Number four was stating before prescribing the oral contraceptive pill that it will not balance your hormones and regulate your cycle. One of you, someone listening is going to have had this happen to them that they've gone in with maybe even symptoms of PCOS, like irregular cycles, they've had some acne, whatever it is, or they've had uh, yeah, really far apart home, uh, periods or really close together. And uh, 
they've been told oral contraceptive, it's great, it'll balance your hormones and regulate your cycle. Um, you might get a withdrawal bleed every month. So it might look like you are having a regular cycle. But let's also just be clear that the oral contraceptive pill shuts off the communication between your brain and your ovaries. You actually don't produce your own hormones anymore. So it's just not possible for it to balance your hormones. You're being provided synthetic hormones, which is shut off communication of your own reproductive system. And you're essentially having a synthetic hormonal induced menstrual cycle each month, which is not really a menstrual cycle. It's just in there to make you feel better about it, really. Um, and no judgment if you are taking the oral contraceptive pill. There can be instances where it might be a viable option. Say, for example, if you have endometriosis and it's excruciatingly painful, and this is the one thing that allows you to live a somewhat normal life and go about your daily life instead of being in crippling pain every month. So there are always exceptions and I am not judging you at all. I just think that we need to be clear about the terminology we're using and also not acting like it's actually going to balance or fix our hormones. And also just a fun fact, initially when the pill was manufactured and made, it didn't have the sugar pill section in it. So you wouldn't actually get a synthetic bleed. And the feedback that drug companies got from women was that it feels really unnatural to just never have a period. And so that was the reason for putting in the sugar pills was basically just to appease our peace of mind. Um, number five is screening all women uh, post-menopause for osteoporosis. Um, we know very clearly in the research that with declining levels of estrogen, women are at much greater risk of then developing osteoporosis. And unfortunately, it's not routinely screened for, which basically means that instead of catching women when we can really do something about it, we're really waiting until they have a degenerative disease like osteoporosis. And it's not to say that it all lost and there's nothing they can do about it, but any intervention is going to have far greater efficacy if we can catch something early before it's developed into a real issue for that person. So I just think for those women, we really need to be more proactive about understanding. And I guess this comes into, if we had that education piece, right, in schools, we would know that we have this increased risk of osteoporosis when we're transitioning out of our reproductive years. And we actually need to be conscious about getting screened, but equally that could be put into our healthcare system, that that was just a standard thing that was being done. Number six is around screening women trying to conceive and pregnant women for blood sugar issues pre-pregnancy or early in trimester one and not waiting to test them with the oral glucose tolerance test at 24 weeks. So anyone who is not pregnant right now probably doesn't know what I'm talking about there, but basically the oral glucose tolerance test is a test that is routinely done at around 24 weeks of pregnancy. And it involves sitting and drinking a sugary solution. So 75 grams of glucose. And I can't do the math on this off the top of my head, but from memory, that's around 18 teaspoons of sugar that you sit down and drink and your blood sugar response is measured across a couple of hours. Basically, the purpose of it is to screen you for, for gestational diabetes. Now, why would we wait 
until 24 weeks to screen women for their risk of gestational diabetes. You don't just magically develop gestational diabetes generally at 24 weeks of pregnancy. If you are getting to that point, then you had an issue with your blood sugar far earlier. So why are we not looking for those issues earlier on and say, if we caught a woman who was not yet pregnant or a woman who was early in trimester one, we have so much more time to prevent that from actually developing into gestational diabetes rather than waiting until she is in those later stages of pregnancy when it is a lot harder. Early detection is really, really key. Number seven is assessing nutrient status thoroughly in women trying to conceive and early in pregnancy for nutrients known to affect fetal development and pregnancy outcomes. And I put this includes iodine because this is one that is a little harder to usually get approved through Medicare via your GP. I think it's so important for all women trying to conceive especially those maybe who have already conceived and are only try one and it's never too late wherever you are in pregnancy to go and get really thorough blood testing done because these nutrients directly affect the health of your baby and also your post-pregnancy outcomes. So literally that saying of if you're pouring from an empty cup, you know, you're not going to be able to give with to anyone. It's essentially the same thing, right? If you are starting pregnancy off nutrient deficient, it's going to be really hard uh, and your body will usually give the baby everything it needs um, at the expense of your own health. So we know that say in pregnancy, the body is able to actually start leaching things like calcium from your bones in order to give them to your baby. So it's really important for us to actually assess nutrient status thoroughly. And I don't just mean iron. I don't just mean your full blood count, like really looking at all your key nutrients. Uh, And I marked especially iodine or including iodine rather, because as I said, it's not something routinely included uh, under Medicare. And it really should be because it is a very common deficiency, not just in Australia, but worldwide, up to 40% of the Aussie, of the worldwide population, sorry, is iodine deficient. And iodine deficiency is remains one of the leading causes of developmental delays in children. So I think it's really important that we screen these sorts of things early um, when we can actually really do something about it, especially, you know, early in try one, ideally preconception where you've got a couple of months up your sleeve and you can really start improving those outcomes. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that what a prenatal is for? Yes and no. So a prenatal is basically a little insurance policy, ideally on what you're already doing with your diet. So the dosages in a prenatal, apart from something like folate, are not necessarily high enough to correct a nutrient deficiency. They're enough really to provide a little insurance policy if your diet is not amazing on some days or just to sort of top up those nutrient levels. But for example, if you have an iron deficiency already, your prenatal is really just not going to make the cut. If you have a zinc deficiency already, it's definitely not going to make the cut, right? So that really needs to be addressed. We just need to be aware of these things and getting that proper testing done. And for most testing, it's all able to be approved through Medicare via the help of your GP. 
Number eight is screening all women trying to conceive and those in try one for iron deficiency. As the literature shows that only 20% of women actually start pregnancy with adequate iron stores. And at the moment, it's my understanding that it's the standard to wait until 28 weeks to screen women for iron deficiency. And again, my question is, why are we waiting? So what we know from iron physiology in pregnancy is that basically in very basic sort of layman's terms, the best your iron will ever look during pregnancy is in trimester one. So from one to 12 weeks there on out, it's basically a slow downhill spiral (laughs) of your iron levels. So That's why it's so crucial, ideally to get them done before you're pregnant, but we don't always plan these things or, you know, we get swept up in life. So getting that testing done early in try one gives us a really good understanding of where you're sitting and whether we need to include a supplement and how often we need to actually be checking in on your iron during pregnancy to track uh, its progression and how quickly it's falling as the pregnancy progresses. So really important that we get that done earlier and not waiting until basically A, your iron is going to look the worst it's ever, one of the worst times it's ever going to look at 28 weeks. And just also there's a lot less that we can do about it at that point because your baby's needs have really started to ramp up by that point in time. And also you've got this thing happening called hemodilution, which is basically where you have more fluid on board. As you can imagine, the baby's growing and your body is growing at the same time. And so that actually makes the iron that you do have available look worse than what it is. So Again, we want to have that reference point. What was it at try one, try two, try three, and so on and so forth. Number nine is that we need to be screening women trying to conceive. Number nine is looking at screening all women that are postpartum and especially those who are experiencing postnatal anxiety and postnatal depression for nutrient deficiencies known to be depleted in pregnancy and known to be essential for mental health before or in conjunction with a prescription for antidepressants. So having a baby takes a lot from you. It's a big deal to make a human. It takes a lot of your key nutrients And then combine that with the fact that after having a baby, you're often tired, your nutrients are obviously depleted, sleep might be an issue, and also you're just getting used to being a parent as well. It's a very big life change for you. And so it is common for women to experience symptoms of postnatal anxiety and postnatal depression. And at the moment, the sort of standard of care around that would be often, if needed, the prescription of antidepressants which in some instances may be the right thing. But I believe that we should also be looking at checking for nutrient deficiencies at the same time or before looking at antidepressants, completely depending on the person and their wishes and also the state of their mental health. So nutrients like B12, like iron, like zinc, these are all crucial for your mental health and known to be depleted in pregnancy. So regardless of whether you've experienced personal anxiety or personal depression, all postpartum women should be going and getting that screening done. It should just be part of our standard of care, not just the kind of, okay, great, yep, see you later, and sort of hope for the best. We need to be quite proactive around that. 
that's it for this week's extra episode. The nine things that need to change in the standard of care being provided to girls and women. I hope that you enjoyed it. And that's it for now. Next, we'll be also touching on some more hormone goodness. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or two or come over and say hello to me on Instagram. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.